0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the weekly podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today, I'm pleased to welcome to the show a man whose alcoholism literally affected the lives and well-being of others. Jim G. is a medical doctor who secretly battled addiction to alcohol and drugs for many years prior to achieving sobriety in AA over 21 years ago. Jim grew up in an abusive family with a father whose military career relocated the family many times during Jim's childhood and adolescence. Jim faced additional suffering during countless hospitalizations for medical conditions related to hemophilia, a rare bleeding disorder in which the blood does not clot properly. Turning to booze and drugs during his high school and college years, Jim's escalating alcoholism accompanied his medical degree, internship, and residency into his position as an ob at a major hospital. Turns out that the hospital culture, with its hard-working and hard-drinking doctors and nurses, further fueled Jim's lifestyle with alcohol and cocaine. The effects of constant alcohol and drug use soon threw Jim's personal life into turmoil, replete with three failed marriages and ever-deepening despair. Professionally, drugs and alcohol impaired his medical practice and became a severe threat to the safety of his patients. By the time Jim was intervened upon by his hospital and placed in a long-term rehab facility, he had had enough and was desperate to recover. Thankfully, he found a strong AA community that offered him the ego deflation and no-nonsense support he needed to get sober. As he grew in that community, he built a humble new life in which he could be of real service to others, especially those in the medical profession who find it difficult to admit defeat by the disease. Jim's story offers a rare perspective we don't hear often in ordinary AA meetings, especially since many physicians attend closed meetings amongst their own. But his involvement and in service as an active participant in everyday AA is proof positive of a man whose AA program is on solid ground. I'm grateful Jim's here with me on AA Recovery Interviews and believe you'll find this podcast to be both enlightening and reassuring. So please relish the next hour with my friend and AA brother, Jim G.
1: My name is Jim and I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Jim. Welcome to the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I'm so glad you could join us today, and I appreciate you getting up early. It's good that uh, it's good to see you. You and I have spent some time in AA meetings on Zoom over the past couple of years, and it's uh, really been great to get to know you in that format. And I know you've been at home convalescing with, the, uh, with a knee operation, I believe, and, and you, were, you were starting to tell me about what happened when you had that pain. You had to cancel a trip.
1: Yes. uh, I've been having trouble, as I said, for probably 10 years and getting uh, steroid injections into it for a while. I mean, I knew I had arthritis in it. Yeah. And um, on a particular day in August of last year, 2021, when um, we were planning on going on a big trip, the pain was just a lot worse. And I was basically up all night worrying about it, Uh praying about it. Finally, I woke my wife up at about one or two in the morning, and we decided to cancel the trip, um, which then involved about 16 different phone calls to cancel oh, our reservations, oh, and uh, headed to the hospital later that morning. And uh doctor saw me, and he stuck a needle in that knee and pulled out about a quarter of a cup of blood. Oh. And... Um, that gets into another problem that I have, which is a, a problem I was born with called hemophilia, where mm. my blood doesn't clot normally. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I knew, I knew it had come to the point where something was going to have to be done uh, with this knee. So oh. over the next two months, the decision I made the decision to have a knee replacement, which was a more major operation for someone with my medical condition.
0: You know, I forgot to ask you earlier what, what your sobriety date is.
1: Uh, September 30th, year 2000.
0: Okay, so you're, you're 20, 21? 21, 21 and a half. <laughs> what were your concerns when you went into the hospital to have the knee replacement with regard to the pain that you might have to manage afterwards? And how did you deal with all the pain over the years that this thing was going on?
1: I have a pretty high pain threshold just from having hemophilia. I've had a lot of injuries over my life, Mm -hmm. especially especially on the right side of my body, strangely enough. But but um, my right leg in particular, I was first hospitalized, I think, at age 13. Uh, I've probably spent over a year in the hospital, all total, not at once. But uh, six months, six weeks here, a month here. It adds up basically for pain. Uh, you know something like Motrin or uh, in that category of medication or Tylenol,
0: yeah were, yeah, were
1: the only things I would be using, and I didn't have any particular concerns about the pain. Uh, I knew it would be managed well and it, and it was mm-hmm. and uh, yes, I was on narcotics. I've been off of them now for more than a month. I think probably I was on them for about. A month after the surgery, oh, I, I see. Uh, then you know I stopped him because by the time I saw my doctor at the six-week checkup, mm-hmm. I had been off him for a, for two weeks, and he said, "Okay, you can drive then."
0: Good, good. <laughs> so that was that was taken care of. So are you uh, are you one of those andas uh, alcoholic and a drug addict, or you just consider yourself just an alcoholic? Or?
1: I would consider myself both. Okay. I mean, in, yeah. in my early sobriety, I mean, very very early, I, I attended other. Uh, Meetings, Cocaine Anonymous, Marijuana Anonymous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think uh, when we were in rehab, we even went to a meeting called Pills Anonymous, uh, which was interesting. They would say, screwed uh, a day at a time. For me, it's a minute at a time. (laughs) But the place I related to most was Alcoholics Anonymous. And I feel at home in those meetings.
0: Yeah, I get that. I've had a lot of guests on the show who've said the exact same thing. They started out in N.A. or CODA or one of the other programs, uh, Pills Anonymous, uh, Emotions Anonymous, Gambling Anonymous, whatever. But they've always kind of come back to AA. At what point did you start getting hospitalized and having medical conditions related to your hemophilia?
1: Well, the first time was in 19... 66, so Mm -hmm. I was 14. That's when I was in the hospital, six weeks. I remember getting a lot of blood products Mm -hmm. and had a long rehab after I was out of the hospital, but basically rehabbed back to better than ever. Mm. I then remember being in the hospital during high school and speaking about addiction. I I don't remember much about the pain medications I got in that first hospitalization, Mm -hmm. but in the second one, I was in a boarding school in the Northeast, uh, far away from my family. Mm-hmm. We, we, we we had pulled a prank on somebody at our school. We filled his room up with newspaper balls <laughs> so that when he opened the door, all this newspaper <laughs> oh came out. And anyway, God. he took great offense at that and came running down the hallway and kneed me with all his might in my right knee, mm. which put me in the hospital. Anyway, I can remember getting narcotics then, and I can remember feeling like I was lying in a field of of flowers. And it was like the greatest feeling in the world. (laughs) So I can remember getting a high off of that. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't ever remember any sort of withdrawal issues or, you know, like, give me my next shot, doc, you
0: know. So what did your home look like when you were growing up? Your family of origin, is there alcoholism within the family tree? And can you Uh, unpack a little bit of what your your childhood looked like before you started drinking and how you transitioned to that?
1: I'm the baby. Uh, I've got an older sister and older brother. Mm -hmm. My father was in the in the army, full career army officer. You know, you never want to call someone else an alcoholic, but I I would think he was. Mm -hmm. He was a periodic, though, and he was a rager. He physically abused me. Interestingly enough, neither of my siblings remember it or remember being the recipient of abuse from him. So that's like fascinating. And it almost sets up, am I remembering things wrong? But no, I'm sure it happened to me.
0: It's more about their repression than it is about you.
1: Could be. You know, one of the gifts of sobriety is I've been able to totally, totally forgive him of everything and and, and empathize with what he went through. He lost his father at age eight and basically was was raised by his maternal grandmother, who Mm -hmm. I believe was an alcoholic, because when I used to go visit my grandmother, my father's mother, I would stay in her mother, my father's grandmother, maternal grandmother's room, and it was filled with cases of gin unopened. (laughs) I mean, literally there must have been like 20 or 30 cases of gin in there. Yeah. It was always a joke. And, and my grandmother's uh, brother, I mean, they're, they're in their like seventies. He would come over every Sunday and he would head straight to the kitchen where all the alcohol was and get himself a drink before anything else. And there was just a lot of jocularity, I would say Mm -hmm. among, around drinking. This is in a small town in Indiana. And, um, the first time I ever smoked marijuana was with my second cousin, we went riding in his car out in the boondocks and, and smoked. And then we were even smoking around my grandmother who didn't seem to care. But even prior to that, I can remember when I was about nine, my dad seemed to think it was a good idea to serve wine at the table to you know everybody, even a nine-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he watered it down. But yeah, so I was drinking like, I can remember red wine, maybe fifty percent water, at age nine. And he I think he thought it was something continental or something. <laughs> he he did some crazy things at times.
0: What was going on with your mom at that point?
1: My mom was like the perfect codependent. He would yell at her, but there seemed to be great love between them. She she was always trying to build him up. She used a lot of denial. I had some resentments against her too initially, but again, Uh you know, recovery is great for getting over all that. But um, that first time I was hospitalized, I had been home in bed maybe for like a week or two before Uh that because my mom was basically in kind of denial over what was going on with me. You know, oh, you'll get better, just stay in bed.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: She didn't have a good grasp on what hemophilia was and that, you know, you probably need to get treatment immediately.
2: Mm.
0: As you're talking about that, I'm wondering, um, when did you first see the linkage between what was going on in your family and your desire to change the way you felt about that?
1: Wow, probably not till I got into recovery. Really? Um, So that's like um, (laughs) many, many years later.
0: So what, what did you attribute what was going on in your childhood to?
1: I I don't know if I spent a lot of time thinking about it, except like I like that family better than my family. I want to go, I want to have a family like that. I want to go spend my vacation with this family where everybody seems to be getting along. Okay. Mm -hmm. I can remember when I was a really little kid, we didn't have a TV and I'd like to, I would go over to another person's house to watch Saturday morning cartoons. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's like, okay, this, dad plays ball with his kids and this and my dad just you know he he didn't want to do any of that occasionally he would invite me into his world and we would go and we he would call it a training day and we would go and see what he did at work and and that was very exciting you know i got to you know go inside tanks and helicopters (laughs) you know all manner of military stuff
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but he was not Someone to join in sports, or you know, he, when when I played sports before I found out it was a hemophiliac, and I was getting injured in those. But he he would never come to the games. My mom would. Yeah. Um, he was kind of a standoffish kind of guy.
0: Yeah, that that's how my dad was. You you just described my father almost to a T. He never engaged except to yell and hit and and abuse. Uh, my mother was emotionally just absent. Uh, she had checked out years before and he would yell at her, but then he would hit the kids and every now and then he'd let me into his world and he'd take me on one of his business trips for the day to, to he was in sales and those were some of the best the best times, but they were so few and far between that yeah. they weren't they weren't sufficient to recollect a happy childhood. So you moved around a lot because of your dad's uh, being in the Army? Yeah. What was that like for you when when you had to be continually moving and starting new schools all the time?
1: I was thinking about that today in in regards of this interview. I I moved seven times by the time I was 16. I was always a shy person Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed by the time I was meeting somebody that could be my friend, Mm -hmm. then it was about time to move. And I can remember when I was like 14 or 15, getting ready to move again to go to this boarding school. I had just met a girl that was like, oh, you know, we kissed, you mm-hmm. know. But then, you know, a month later I was gone, you know, and never to see her again.
0: Did you go to the same boarding school the whole time uh, that you were, that your dad was moving?
1: Three years, the last three years of high school.
0: So you had a little bit of extended time in one place yeah but you were going home on breaks and that sort of thing
1: well there's a term in the 12 and 12 which I love mm-hmm. page 57 anxious apartness it's in step five in the 12 and 12 when I read that I like underlined that so much that described the way I felt back then to a T hmm. I never felt a part of. There was times when I was at that boarding school during a break, there was nobody who would take me anywhere, you know, who said, "Why don't you come to my house?" and I stayed on campus. And you know, out of a out of maybe 200 kids, there were maybe less than 10 of us on campus. And these were usually people who are not American born who were from another country. And I really felt isolated then.
0: Kind of abandoned from your family? Yeah. Was it that your, your folks didn't want you to come back or you didn't want to go back? Who was kind of steering that decision?
1: They were in a foreign country. Oh. They were way far away. And uh, yeah, I was in Connecticut. They were in Turkey. There, there was just no way. I mean, they couldn't afford to do it on commercial airlines yeah. and to try to get there on military airlines would have, you know, for a one week vacation. I would go there in the summer, but sometimes I'd go to my grandmother's house who Uh lived in Indiana. Other times, people, different friends of mine in the school would invite me to their house. But I guess there was no invitation at that particular time.
0: Sounds really tough. And as a kid, to not have a home base or a place that feels like home... I mean in my house things were so dysfunctional, so chaotic, so violent, but yet still it was it was home nonetheless, but to be out somewhere and not even be allowed back home, I I can imagine that was really really tough for you.
1: I think it kind of matured me in one way, but not necessarily emotional. You know, I became very aware of kind of like looking at the world and kind of like, you know, seeing seeing remarkable things. Mm-hmm. Like um, I was hospitalized in a small town in Connecticut, but they didn't quite do the job with me. I mean, I wasn't rehabilitated. And so then it went on to a vacation and I went down to Washington, D.C., I remember, and I was admitted to Walter Reed Hospital, like probably the best Army hospital. On the floor above me, I think Eisenhower had died. And I looked out my window and I see the presidential limo come in and there's Nixon coming out of the car going up. This was an incredible hospital. I mean, they had like, you know, recreation centers. And I was down there, you know, with all the Vietnam vets and they really taught me how to play pool. And I just was getting a schooling um, (laughs) such that I don't think I would ever get anywhere else. But I mean, you know, I don't, I don't remember any drugs or alcohol or anything on that at that point in time for me.
0: You mentioned marijuana earlier and you mentioned some drinking. So are we moving into the period of later adolescence now to your late later teens?
1: Yeah, I'm in high school, but really that took off when I got to college.
0: When you got to college. So what what was that all about? How did that look in your life?
1: So in high school, actually from even long, even earlier, and maybe because of my having been in the hospital, I just knew, I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I can remember when I was like in junior high, I wrote to the Dean of the Harvard medical school and say, what would be the best courses for me to take in <laughs> high school to prepare me for eventual medical school? And maybe somewhere I have that letter. He, he wrote me back personally. And so I applied to a program which would get you a bachelor's and a medical degree in six years. Uh-huh. And you wouldn't have to reapply to medical school. And so it would take two years off of that. Mm-hmm. So I applied to that and got into that school. You know, I uh, I came back from my summer vacation in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Uh I had actually been drinking that summer, I remember now. I was a lifeguard. I I was in really good shape. Mm -hmm. I was looking good. I thought I had a tan. You know, girls were like, save me, lifeguard. (laughs) Um, I went out with some airmen, I remember, and we were drinking. And um, I think I can remember coming home drunk, you know. And my father knew, I think he knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. By this time, I had no fear of him anymore. In fact, I had stood up to him, you know, because I was bigger than him at that time. And all he could do really was maybe be verbally abusive, but I, he, he was a wild guy in his youth too. So I don't think he really cared. Mm-hmm. But when I got back to college or when I started college, um, the guy I was matched with, uh, and we were all like very smart people because this was, you know, we're all in the six year medical program. We were all rooming together. Uh-huh. He was like the Victorian of his high school, uh-huh. very different than me. I mean, I was starting to, you know, learn about a lot of different cultures and things, you know, once I got to college. But,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, it was on then with marijuana. I mean, pretty soon, you know, people were coming over to our room to deal and, uh, you know, and the drinking age by this time I was 18, the drinking age in Boston. And uh, there was a bar like (laughs) literally right outside our dorm, two doors over. And I, I didn't really like alcohol that much. I can remember the first drinks that I was drinking were like, kind of what I would consider foofy drinks, Uh, sweet drinks. We were doing whatever we were doing to get high. Quaaludes was in the mix. Um, Yeah, we were doing that. I also worked at a uh, hospital Mm -hmm. in Boston to just try to get some extra money. Uh And I was what you call the ward clerk. Uh And so as as patients came in, I had to catalog all their medications and (laughs) I'm like a medical student. So I say, Oh yeah, Valium. (laughs) I think I'll take a few of those. And, you know, so I, I would like take a few out of the bottles of of stuff, which Mm -hmm. I knew was the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, and there's certain scenes I can remember, you know, when I was working there, you know, um, that's the first time I had ever heard about cocaine. I mean, I remember they were having like a, cardiac arrest and a surgeon, an anesthesiologist came in and he had his little bottle of cocaine to anesthetize the vocal cords, you know, the, the throat before they intubate the person. And he tried it on himself first. And he said, Oh, yeah, that's the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, Oh, okay, this is what people do. I mean, in medical school, every Friday, they had something called liver rounds,
2: uh-huh.
1: where uh, basically, you went in and drank with the faculty, The students and the faculty, they drank and, you know, you you would get that you'd see the faculty getting high, you know, inebriated. Same with us. I think it's it was a different time then in the 70s.
0: Things weren't as tightly controlled back yeah. then, too, as they are now with yeah. regard to the prescriptions or addictive substances used for other purposes. While you were doing that, was it just because everybody else was doing it? Or, or did you have your own purposes for wanting to uh, nick a few drugs here and there along the way?
1: I just wanted to fit in. Um I I was working the shift, and usually on weekends. So by the time I got off duty at at 11 o'clock, I would be going back to the dormitory. Everybody had been partying for a few Mm -hmm. hours already. I felt I kind of had to be where they were, you know, in terms (sighs) of (laughs) uh, mental alteration, if you will. That's what I was doing. You know, I think I just I just wanted to be a part of, you know, how I said, I I had anxious apartness I wanted to be a part of back then so I just wanted to fit in
0: was there a period of time when you felt like you fit in unconditionally
1: yeah I mean I would say the guy who was my roommate for the first few years you know, he was what you would call a cool guy. I mean, he could, he could get any uh-huh. girl he wanted. He, he kind of, he kind of looked like Jim Morrison of the doors. So he and I, you know, we had a lot of escapades and, you know, we were going to dangerous, uh, parts of Boston uh-huh. together drinking. And, uh, I kind of knew things weren't right, but I, I mean, I remember passing out well, let's put it this way. I remember coming to on the floor of a men's room in Uh some bar. And I'm thinking, hmm, this isn't good.
0: (laughs) At that point, had you ever considered that you were having any kind of problem with drinking or using marijuana?
1: I don't think I had. And then, you know, then I worked uh, in a suicide prevention center as part of my medical school training. And I was dealing with people who are alcoholics but my my understanding of what an alcoholic was at that time was someone who's homeless living under a bridge you know that sort of thing and uh, I was still functioning I was you know maybe I wasn't at the top of the class anymore but I'm in the middle of my class in medical Uh school, and hey, that's that's pretty good, you know. And then I flunked an exam, (laughs) and then it's like, okay, uh, maybe you know, maybe we gotta cut back or something. But I mean, it was never a, a question of like, do I have a problem? Should I give this up once and for all? It was just a matter of, okay, let's kind of, you know, stop for a while.
0: Well, you were pretty far away from the guy, the drunk under the bridge. Uh, Yeah. What's funny about it is that you and I are of the same generation that, you know, whenever I thought of what an alcoholic was when I was a kid and a teenager and even later on was that bum under the bridge. But nowadays, I'm wondering what do people think an alcoholic is, let's say, in a millennial generation or uh, what do you see them thinking of? Are they still thinking about the bum under the bridge or are they thinking about something else?
1: That's an excellent question, Howard. I. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking because I have a daughter who's you know of the millennial age, and I'm but then she knows what I went through. So, and I think they may have friends who they detect have problems. There's such a more of an awareness of it on the media, and you know, people who are functional drinkers, but yet problems are coming. But uh-huh. I think a lot of people still have that opinion.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, once you graduated medical school, what was the trajectory to finally getting sober 21 years ago?
1: Well, as you come out of medical school, you, first of all, you kind of have to figure out, okay, what kind of a doctor do I want to be? What appeals to me? And, you know, you take a lot of different electives in medical school.
0: Uh-huh. Anyway,
1: what appealed to me more than anything was obstetrics and gynecology, you know, mm-hmm. delivering babies. It's, it's generally a happy field. I I love the field of endocrinology, which is, you know, very much part of that field. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went around the country to interview at various places Mm -hmm. um, all over uh, Georgia, Baltimore, Texas, Mm -hmm. California. It's almost like applying to college. You then apply to residencies and you rank them. And then there's what's called match day, which is a huge Mm -hmm. day in medical school where you get matched. So I got my second choice. When I went there, uh, you know, I could instantly tell which doctors were kind of the hip doctors who probably used drugs and things and, Uh you know, soon got invited to their parties. And yes, it was true. And again, we're still in the 70s here, the late 70s. -hmm. Cocaine was starting to come into the picture now. And, And, you know, marijuana, drinking, all of that. But I was still able to... Do the work, you know, I mean, and it was tough. I mean, I would sometimes be on a 24 hour, you know, shift, no breaks, Uh uh, such that, you know, the next day I I, I just had to sleep, you know, or I'd go out to eat with my wife at the time and I'd fall asleep during the dinner. But it was more due to the work than than any sort of drugs or alcohol.
0: So you were doing alcohol, pot and a certain amount of cocaine.
1: Yeah not too much cocaine. That's the way it went. I mean, and the same guy who had been my my roommate in college and and in medical school, Uh he he had also come out and he he was a partier from the Mm get-go. And so he and I used to pal around together, much to the detriment of my marriage at the time. You know, we were doing drugs together and cocaine and stuff of that nature.
0: Yeah. What was that doing to your marriage?
1: Well, it destroyed it. It broke up eventually.
0: It did. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so the evolution was that you, you go into a res, residency program, which mm-hmm. is an internship, which is generally four years. And then you get, you get a job, which I did. Uh huh. But, you know, I'm still kind of hanging around with this guy. We're still, you know, doing stuff. Eventually it started to catch up to me, you know, and maybe it was because there was more cocaine in the mix. Um, people at work, and when I say people, I mean like my boss and things were getting wondering what was going on with Jim. You know, you used to be such a high performer, Jim. You were one of my best. And now, it, you know, you're mediocre, you're average. And it's like, okay, I'm hmm. okay with that. You know, it, my grand sponsor talks about you kind of lower your standards. You know, okay, I'm, I'm okay with this. And before long, you are living under a bridge, and I'm okay with this, you know. Um, But I said, okay, I'll have a problem if I ever have to call in sick because of you know my my drinking and drugging. Uh And then I did call in sick. Okay, if I ever do it six times in a month, then I got a real problem.
0: Was this before or after your marriage fell apart? After. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. You mentioned that your wife didn't like it very much, but were you drawing any connections between what was going on, both in terms of the performance of your job and your marriage, that the drugs and alcohol might be the root of your problem?
1: Let me just think about this for a minute, Howard, to make sure I have the, the time, timing right. No, this is much. This is much later. I, I've been married a few times by this time.
0: And were booze and drugs the reasons for them not working?
1: Well, no, not not in every situation. But in my first marriage, there there was adultery on both sides. I started having an affair with a nurse, but she introduced me to a spirituality mm. that kind of took me away from drinking and druggings. And um, you know, it seemed like okay, things are going to be better. Hmm. But then she kind of, that marriage fell apart. She was an extremely jealous woman.
0: Was that predicated on you stopping drinking?
1: No, I had I stopped. Okay. Or or if I was drinking, it was social. I mean, it, it I, I wasn't hanging around with these these other people who, you know, was when I would be doing it to an extreme.
0: In deference to the marriage and the yeah. woman that you were with, yeah. I see. Yeah.
1: We were actively involved in a church, and uh-huh. but she was extremely jealous such that, you know, if she saw me looking at another woman, she would wonder what was going on. And, um, you know, I think sometimes this happens, you know, when two people come from other marriages that there's some suspicion and that marriage didn't last very long at all. And it was after that that then I was living by myself. And then there was another woman that I was living with, but not married to. Then, then I married my third wife.
3: Uh-huh.
1: She was a heavy drinker and a drugger. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, now my wife's this. I don't even have to go see my friend anymore. We can just do it together. And so we would be partying all the time, going to Las Vegas. You know, She had all the connections. She knew dealers. And that's when I started really performing more poorly at work. So now this is leading up to my uh, coming into recovery. Um, So, yeah, so this is like we're in the late 90s now. Uh One day at work, I passed out. I was in the surgeon's lounge in between surgical cases and I Mm -hmm. passed out. And finally, I came to. And I knew I had another surgery case. And so I went to the person who controlled the, you know, the kind of the flow of the surgery and said, what's happening with this? And she said, you do, you need to go to your office. So I went to my office and there was confronted with the head of the chemical dependency uh, program at my hospital.
2: Hmm.
1: And she she basically said um you need to do a drug test right now. Hmm. And I said, and I have no idea where this came from. I knew they were kind of on me. They were kind of aware of what was going on to me. And I actually used to carry a little bottle of urine in my pocket of somebody who I knew didn't do drugs. <laughs> they didn't really care so much about drinking. Yeah, And I knew this guy, this other guy drank because he was a Budweiser distributor, but they didn't want their doctors you know doing drugs, but at this point in time, when I was in the office with that person, something came on me something later which someone in recovery, who I could talk about in a minute uh-huh. called the miracle of willingness and uh every time I think about this scene, I get goosebumps and I get emotional about it because all of a sudden I got honest. And I said, I'll be happy to do a drug test, but I'll tell you what it will be positive for. It'll probably be positive for cocaine, marijuana, and maybe they're cutting the cocaine and it will show some speed in it, too. Um, and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And her voice got softer and she said, OK, I want you to go into a recovery program. And this was I think this was on a Wednesday. And she, and she said, OK. And so it was set up for Friday Anyway, I had a day in between (laughs) where I went out and I went to a bar and (laughs) and drank some more. But uh, the next day, uh, September 30th, 2000, that was my original sobriety date and still is. Uh And um, when I got in there, you know, of course, I was somewhat toxic, but I saw the steps on the wall. I saw the traditions on the wall. I saw the word God and it didn't scare me. Um, Because I'd had a relationship with God before I mentioned that. And I said, "Okay, God, I've been running away from you and I'm really happy I'm back. Hmm. Just take me, God, and use me. Uh, Let me surrender to you.
0: A moment of clarity.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, in spite of probably still being toxic, coming, you know, going through detox. And it's funny because... This college roommate of mine who had been one of my drinking and drugging partners, he had kind of been through recovery also. huh. And I called him. You know, you're allowed to. There was a pay phone there. <laughs> you were allowed to call people. Uh-huh. And uh, he said, Jim, I just have one word for you. Surrender. And um, so I took oh. that to heart. It's like I wanted to just kind of try to make things right. I wanted, I called the uh, head of the chemical dependency unit at my hospital, and I said, I want to – and she said, this isn't the time to be talking to me yet. She hmm. said, just listen to what they're telling you there. There'll, there will be a time. I mean, she, she. I always thought maybe she was in the program too, but she never said it. But I mean, she was basically talking about the ninth step there, and I hadn't even done the first step. So, you know, going to meetings, it, it was just, it was a wonderful time. And I was in there for 30 days. And then I went home.
0: Was that a treatment center that was specifically oriented towards physicians? Or was this a, just a regular general population type facility? This
1: was a hospital with a chemical dependency unit. Not my hospital, but a, a hospital. I think maybe there was another physician in there at the time. There are maybe like 20, 20, people in there. But my roommate was, um, <laughs> what was he? I mean, he was like a, a technical guy for an evangelist.
3: <laughs> oh, wow. Uh,
1: there were all kinds of people in there. Uh <laughs> You know, sports figures, um, you know, it was kind of a well-to-do place. All kinds of people. Uh, Some people who had been in multiple times, they call them spin dry. You know, they weren't going to be in there for 30 days, maybe a week just to dry out.
0: Looking at the intervention, though, that that this chemical dependency counselor had sprung upon you, uh, just prior to that, let's say the weeks, months, even years prior to that, were you starting to acknowledge to yourself, or at any point, did you acknowledge to yourself that you had a problem and would eventually have to do something about it? I mean, having urine in your pocket and a little vial uh, suggests that you were looking to beat the system whenever the system was trying to beat you. What, what were you thinking, and what, were, what was your frame of mind whenever it was you thought about the problems you were having versus your need to stop?
1: I don't think I was thinking Honestly, I mean, when when we went into recovery, you know, they said some you know kind of mocking, deprecating things like a monkey could run your life better than you're doing it, you know. And and there's a lot of shame with this, you know. I'm I'm a I'm a doctor taking care of people, and
0: do you think that makes it tougher for doctors, it just in general to finally admit they're alcoholics and get sober, or is it is it a mindset?
1: I think so. I think yeah. so. And, and and that's, you know, where those caduceus meetings that you were talking about become important to um, deal with those feelings, which I don't know, it's 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 sometimes it can be hard to talk about actual situations that had occurred, uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, e- evoke the shame, you know, except amongst people who who really can understand it, who have been there.
0: Like practicing under the influence. yeah. If you're sitting in a room of people who aren't doctors, there's nobody in there who could possibly know what it was like to operate on somebody while you were not in your right frame of mind.
1: I think so. I mean, they might be able to try to empathize with it, but it could be difficult. You know, Mm. and sometimes, you know, when I was talking to people, you know, patients, you know, I I would start to kind of nod off, you know, and I can remember like a, a husband of a patient saying, doctor, what's have you been up all night or something? You know, and and you would usually just say, "Yeah, I was on call or something." You you'd lie about it. Yeah. But you knew that wasn't the truth. I really honestly don't know Howard before I got into recovery if I had any insight as to where this would lead.
0: Was there ever that sense of that this can't possibly be happening to me because I'm so smart or I'm in a type of profession that it couldn't possibly? And did you get that false sense of security in your own disease because of what you were and who you were and what you did for a living?
1: I think so. I mean, I thought I could always control my alcohol, you know, uh-huh. I, you know but I think, you know, when cocaine came into the picture, it's just like that took me down fast and uh, i but yeah you you have this intellectual pride and i really needed to be brought down and humbled mm-hmm. to get into a place where all there was only a spiritual solution and that's what i found in in the rooms of alcoholics anonymous
0: and you found that as part of the treatment process, you said they were taking you to AA meetings or were yeah. meetings coming into the place. Both. So what are your recollections of the early meetings, let's say the first few weeks or few months of AA? What what did those look like for you? And how did you feel about the program in general?
1: I I felt like I'm hearing people who have gone through what I've gone through and are successful, are happy, joyous, mm-hmm. and free. <laughs> um, You know, but again, I was somewhat foggy, I think. Uh And uh, and again, I'm looking at it 20 years hence. But um, those first few weeks, uh, you know, and then you have what's called family week where your family comes in. And that was kind of, you know, that that creates some chaos because my my wife at the time was still actively using. Mm. And um, I had yet to be kind of hooked up with the state monitoring program, but I knew that that was to come. I kind of had this kind of mindset, okay, just do what they say, just follow direction, follow direction. And so when I got discharged and I went home, soon thereafter, I was, I, I was told by the state uh, that I would have to go live in a recovery home, that the house that I was living in was not a safe place, that I needed more recovery. And I was telling my wife, and she was just all kind of yelling at me about this, like, why do you have to do this? Why that? Well, why, why? And I'd learned enough tools at that time to realize that when I started feeling anxious, I should probably go to a meeting. Yeah. And I can remember this so vividly. This is another one of those kind of things which never goes out of your mind. It was a th- Thursday. And I went to the local fellowship hall, and there was a candlelight meeting where you know once the meeting starts they turn off all the lights and there's just candlelights. Yeah. And when I walked into that meeting, they asked me to lead it. And I can, I mean, I can still remember what I was even wearing. I had on, I had a leather jacket, you know, looked like a tough. I had the collar up and I had my head <laughs> down. And I came in and they asked me to lead. And I said, I remember saying, "Well, I've never been to this meeting. I've let, never led a meeting, but you know, since I've been told to follow directions, so yes." So we did, you know, I'm the leader of the meeting. We do all the readings, the lights go off Uh and anybody want to share silence. So finally I start saying, okay, I'll share. And I just start blabbing my story, uh, and Uh kind of whining about how I'm going to have to go live in a recovery home. And in the, in the darkness in the back, I can't see the person. There's like this laughter. It's almost like an evil laughter. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) You know, I finished sharing, and then this guy shares, and he tells my exact same story. He's a doctor. He's been through these exact same things. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. That's where I met my sponsor, you know, not too long after I'd gotten out of that recovery home. He's still my sponsor. He's got 30-plus years.
0: He was the man in the back who was laughing?
1: Yeah, that was him. (laughs) And we spoke for maybe an hour after that meeting. And he just said, you know, Jim, everything's going to be fine. Just do what they say. You know, Um, you're going to have to go into a recovery home. We probably won't see each other very much, but we can talk by phone Mm -hmm. and just just do what they say. I've been through exactly what you've been through. He got thrown out of his house and stuff. And so I did go to another recovery place, and I was like, "I could have been the father of all the other of the, all the other guys there." Um, my roommate had actually killed somebody dr- drunk driving and was facing prison. you know, and but we went to we were taken to meetings every day. We had, you know, mm-hmm. courses and stuff to ride, and we had to do a lot of riding. but i had I had a car. <laughs> I could drive. And so I started driving other guys around because, you know, most of them didn't have a car or they had lost their license. Um, And I started volunteering at the uh, central office in in the place where I Uh live. And uh, I was, you know, at at that time we had cassette recorders. I was listening to cassette recorders in my car. And I started to attend these meetings that were state mandated just for doctors. Uh And when I went in there... You know the other people and there actually were some doctors there who had been living under a bridge (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and I can remember that woman you know and she said you're still toxic you know and here I am like six weeks sober or something but just from the way I was talking she could tell that I still had some of the effects of the drugs in my system (laughs) even though it'd been that long and, mm-hmm. But um, you know, and we could be random drug tested at any time, and so you had to be ready at a moment's notice to get tested. But I, I just did what they told me. Uh, that program lasted five or six years. I mean, you, hmm. you do kind of graduate from it. <laughs> but um, I but I always enjoyed the AA meetings more than those those mandated meetings, which were just doctors because. In a lot of those meetings, even though they were facilitated by a a, a psychotherapist, Uh um, people were just whining about their situation. You know, I'm being restricted here at the hospital from not being able to do this or that. And I'm thinking, yeah, you brought it on yourself.
0: You had the perspective of AA to compare it to, didn't you?
1: Yeah. At that point in time, I knew everything that's happened to me you know, I did it. And now, you know, with the help of my higher power, I'm pulling myself out of it.
0: Were you working with a sponsor with your sponsor by this point? Or had you not gotten him yet?
1: Well, I had met him, like I said, but right. when I was in this recovery home, we we couldn't meet up okay. very much except by phone. So once I got out of the recovery home, I went back to live in that house. Uh-huh. My wife at the time, had actually gone through the same recovery program I did,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: the same hospital, but it didn't take. And so she was not too long back to using. I mean, and she was going to meetings. I think I seem to remember we went to a few meetings together, Mm -hmm. but she was using, I would find stuff and, I, you know, it, it was at that point where I thought, OK, maybe I need to get into Al-Anon because I started like going through the house and I would find baggies uh-huh. of white powder. And, you know, I I'd call my sponsor. What should I do? What should I do? You know, so he, he would kind of advise me. But we continued to live together. And I, I was just doing my program, uh-huh. going to meetings, uh, helping out, um, volunteering. I always had a commitment. People had told me. It's really important to have a commitment. Commit- commitments will keep you sober.
0: Did you ever feel like your sobriety was threatened by the fact that she was still actively using, and they, and she had all this, these stashes around the house?
1: Yes, but I think I had the tools to deal with it. In in that, I can leave the place. I can call my sponsor. Uh huh. So, when I was about six years sober, uh-huh. I came home from work. And I found that she had committed suicide. Um, I came into our bedroom and I found that she had shot herself. And um, she was dead. And uh, mm. I called 911, called uh, some other good friends. Um, someone from my church came. um mm. few people, actually.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They tested me, of course, for gunshot residue. Right. Uh, sure. I was clean. Um you know, that was kind of the end of that. I I, I, I guess the gun was in the room somewhere. I don't, I don't even remember seeing it. But um, that was on a Friday. That night, I went over, I spent the night at her parents' house. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a complicated situation. She had two children. They weren't living with her by this time because mm-hmm. of the just I guess I was unaware of all, of the amount of drinking and drugging she was doing. We had a big house, and she basically stayed in this, it was almost like a tower of a house. She, she, yeah. she was kind of in this isolated part of the house all by herself. It had its own refrigerator in there. Later, I found that there was all kinds of alcohol and stuff in there. Wow. Um, we stayed with her parents. Either that night or definitely the next morning, I called my grand sponsor. I was pretty mm-hmm. close to both my sponsor and my grand sponsor. For some reason, I called him because I knew he was an early morning person, whereas my sponsor doesn't basically get up till noon uh, and he's up all night. So I called my sponsor, my grand sponsor, and he said, well, where do you think you should be right now, Jim? <laughs> he, he He's kind of like <laughs> a Socratic method. He'll a- ask a question, yeah. you know, and I said, well, probably in a meeting. He said, Yeah that's where I'm going right now. Why don't I meet you there? So I went to the Saturday morning meeting mm-hmm. uh, at the, at this fellowship hall mm-hmm. and uh, shared what happened. I was crying, of course, and I can just remember all the people at this meeting came around me. I was in the center and, and it was like everybody was touching one another oh. and I just felt so lifted and I got so many phone numbers and from that meeting I went to what's what was my home group, um, which started not too long after that meeting, mm-hmm. and um, again shared at that meeting. And there were there were three women at that meeting who had never been at our meeting before. They mm-hmm. they were from out of town. Mm-hmm. And after I finished sharing, one of them started crying and he said, <sighs> said, you know, I've been feeling really suicidal and I want to thank you so much for sharing because, you know, now I don't think I'm going to do it after I've heard what you just said. Wow. And I never saw those women again. And again, I just think higher power does these things sometimes. amazing. They just put these things in your life and you just see kind of a glimpse of what your higher power can do.
0: Yeah, where today's tragedy is tomorrow's gift. You're right. So your experience with the suicide of your wife and your willingness to talk about it openly in a meeting may have saved that woman's life.
1: I have to think that.
0: That's powerful. And this is at six years sober?
1: Just about five and seven months. (laughs)
0: That must have been a really, really difficult time for you. During During the six years that you were in the program, were you doing Al-Anon? Were you doing other things to try and stay in the right frame of mind living in this house with this active alcoholic drug addict?
1: Yeah, I, I was going not, not regularly. I didn't have an Al-Anon sponsor. But I, I went to some Al Anon meetings, and they did ha- at this fellowship hall close to where I did, they, they had like a combined AA Al Anon meeting. Oh, that's good. Which was very interesting, where you would have an AA speaker and then an Al Anon speaker. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they were married, which would make it even more interesting. And then there'd be open sharing after that. And that was a, I found that meeting very enjoyable.
0: What you've talked about, I've experienced myself personally where you take something into a meeting or into, a, uh, let's say, even a smaller group of of, of trusted friends, uh, other men in my case, where they gathered around me like a, it was like a cocoon. And and mm-hmm. uh, they they held me, they held on to me, they gave me the, you know, they they gave me the courage in a lot of ways to just to just carry on and each one of them had had their own tragedies and difficulties so every time they were saying you'll get through this and we love you and we'll pray for you i believed it mm-hmm. but it wasn't until i had to go through that before i really got it so it sounds to me that six years it's almost like everything that you might have known from the first six years kind of came true at that moment was that was there that kind of feeling for you
1: yeah the power of the program just the power of my higher power, you know.
0: Six years in. So we're talking about another 15 years between then and now. What sort of things have occurred during your sobriety since that day that uh, were milestones, would you say, good or bad? And how did you get through them?
1: Well, the big, you know, joyful thing is that, um, you know, I I met a woman where I went to church Mm -hmm. and that it, again, it seemed like God ordained. Um, she was in recovery, and I actually already knew her father. I knew her nephew. We were we had done things at the church in the same program, but I never I I, I never had been aware of her. Maybe we had been in meetings hmm. together,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I I didn't notice her. We had mutual friends in recovery, but anyway, we we started forming a relationship. Hmm. You know, sober dating. This is like the first time this had ever happened.
0: And this was how many years into sobriety that you started dating? Well,
1: I, I, I met her not too long after my wife committed suicide. So, okay. you know, and there, mm-hmm. there was all this question like, OK, is this rebound, you know, and but I probably met her within the month, six weeks at the most after, after mm-hmm. that event. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I mean, eventually by the following February 2007, we were engaged. So we just celebrated 15 years of from our engagement <laughs> and we got married uh, in August 2008. Um, uh-huh. So... You know, we've both been through other marriages. Um, mm-hmm. I have one child from my first marriage. She has none. But, you know, she she loves my daughter, our daughter. We, we call mm-hmm. her. And now we have two two grandchildren who have never seen the, either of us, uh, you know, under the influence. You know, it's just gifts. Um, uh-huh. But, it, you know, it, it's it's a struggle. Uh, marriage is a struggle. So we've we found another program. There, there's a 12-step program for, for couple recovery. Yeah. So that's kind of the latest thing. Uh, we've been involved in that for a, a little over a year now and working the steps in that program. Um, wow. So that's kind of, you know, our, our new thing in recovery. And just it's, it's brought just greater energy into our couple spiritual program, whereas previously it was all kind of individual spiritual work. Now we're trying to do it as a couple. just like, you know, we're looking forward to the time where we can help other couples who are struggling too. giving it away.
0: That's really wonderful to have a partner that you can be in sobriety with who has the same goals in mind of being of use to other couples. And I'm assuming from what I know about you and what I've heard you share in meetings that you've got some men that you sponsor.
1: One at the moment. Uh, He actually has more time than me, (laughs) which is interesting. But, you know, I think after a certain amount of time in the program, that sort of stuff doesn't necessarily matter. Uh But um, he said he wanted me to sponsor him because he liked my spiritual program more than anything else. Um, and that I seem to have, you know, more time to give him.
0: Could you, uh, talk about your spiritual program for a minute? What does that look like on a daily basis?
1: Yeah. Every time, every morning I wake up, I've got, uh, some spiritual readings that I read, Mm -hmm. um, from different books, prayer, um, I'm on the prayer team at my church, and so I get lists every week of people who need prayer, and it's it's kind of daunting uh, how much uh, suffering is going on, but I just turn that all over to God. Um, you know, I'm available to talk. Um, I'd say my the biggest part of my spiritual program is trying to be the best spouse I can be and just trying to love my, my wife uh, the way I, I feel like she should be loved the way god would want her loved mm-hmm. and um you know as i do that and as she hope you know as she does that with me we grow in our spirituality and and you know we we attend you know services at our church
0: so you pray together
1: yeah and and we're of service at there you know we're the head of the prayer team there
0: Wow, that's amazing! So this marriage has really been uh, a true gift in your life after everything that you went through with three previous marriages, one ending in tragedy. Yeah,
1: and for yeah, for both of us, it's like the longest marriage we've been in. You know, and um, we're in it for good. <laughs> we've pledged each other to each other.
0: Well, let me ask you something. Um, Obviously, you got a lot out of the AA meetings, and you were able to keep your medical license as a result of what you did, or was there a period at which it was suspended and you had to get it back? What did that look like?
1: No, as long as you did what this state-mandated program told you to do, Uh um, it it was never in jeopardy. Um, I never lost it. You know, I went back with a new vigor to, you know, do living amends at at the hospital, you know.
0: And what did those look like for you?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of the, uh, some people I went to and I said, you know, this is what I was going through and this is what, you know, this is the process I've gone through now and this is how I'm going to be now. And they, you know, almost to a person, they said, well, we knew something was, was up with you, but we weren't quite sure. And, you know, I, I didn't see any real negative repercussions, Jim, but we're glad you're in a much better place now. But I I just tried to go out of my way to be helpful and, you know, be of service. Uh, You know, when I was asked by my boss to be on whatever committees or do extra jobs, uh, I would do it. And I would never whine. Uh, you know, there were a lot of whiners where I would was working, and mm-hmm. you know, complaining about the boss. And I, you know, I would always stick up with him and say, you know, he's got a tough job, and um, yeah, you know, I would always try to be of service.
0: Yeah, and that's something I—I'll bet you learned in AA that you're able to bring forth into into your professional life. And I, I understand that one of the concerns that physicians often have about being in a general AA population is that they might run into somebody at a meeting who will hear them share about practicing under the influence, whether it's, you know, doing an operation or even just reg- regular medical uh, procedures under the influence or, um, or you know, on on whatever substance. So, they're concerned about keeping that part of their lives truly anonymous. What would you say to a doctor who you believe needs AA who's concerned about that?
1: I think it's really a paper tiger. Um, It doesn't happen as much as you might think. Really? I can remember one time when I was in a meeting, and it was actually soon after my wife had committed suicide, because I think I shared on that at that meeting, and there was one of my own patients, you know, someone who I saw on a regular basis in that meeting, Mm -hmm. And she came up to me and, you know, she called me by my doctor name
2: mm-hmm. and
1: um, she she said, I'm, you know, I'm really glad to know you're in recovery. And I mean, it was a wonderful thing. And, you know, in terms of the other kind of things that you might think about, n- no one's ever really talked to me about that in a meeting. Mm-hmm. I think it's more like you said, it's more of a fear of 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 what you might think is going to happen than than happen. I think if they if they feeling that way, they're keeping their thoughts to themselves. So I would I would tell such a person, you know, go to go to your doctor meetings and you can freely share there um, with other physicians about things you're really concerned about. And, you know, maybe don't share really dramatic things in an open meeting you know you could definitely talk to your sponsor about them Uh you know yeah i mean there's some things which i'm not going to talk about in an open meeting you know i mean i think if if someone had murdered somebody they're not going to go share about it in a meeting they may talk to their sponsor about it or you know get advice but you know you got to use your senses as you get more sober about what's appropriate and what's not Share in a general way
0: right, and that 's something you can learn, and you only really learn it by going to as many meetings as possible to be able to hear what you need to hear uh, it's it's been my experience both with men i 've sponsored and and even personally, to the extent that my disease of alcoholism will take what it can get. So that if I've got some fear about saying something in a meeting, maybe I won't go to that meeting. Mm. And then it becomes easier to not go to that meeting and then suddenly I'm not going to another meeting that I normally go to. And then I start feeling isolated that I can't really talk about this to anybody because I don't want people judging me blah blah blah. And it's like a downhill trajectory. So I, I believe that the kind of fear you're talking about is ideal for the disease to leech off of. I mean, the disease will give you, will take whatever you give it, whether it's the fear of somebody finding out that you're in a profession. I know some airline pilots who, prior to all the rules and breathalyzers and other things, they were very concerned about sharing in a meeting that they were an alcoholic and a pilot. Various programs were created to address that within the industry. Thank God. But so I, I, I can see where the disease might get involved in that and start telling you some lies about it as well. Have you have you noticed that?
1: Yeah. I mean, always in the background, there's this kind of, I don't know, my sponsor and grand sponsor call it your hard wiring and, and your brain never gets totally rewired. So I think, you know, what what I was thinking about when you were just saying what you said was, again, that anxious apartness and and it's that it's the disease always wants you to take you apart from mm. from that. And yet what recovery gives you is becoming a part of. And so when I start to feel that way, you know, and then, and you hear it, you know, you got to double up on your meetings, not not the other way. You've got to, you know, you got to reinvest because uh, mm. again, you know, we have so many sayings in our program. You know, your disease is always in the corner doing push-ups.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we've talked about so much today, and I've gotten such a, a beautiful picture of what your life has been uh, both prior to recovery and sober. And it sounds like you're doing an exceptional job dealing with sobriety, and it took what it took for you uh, to get here. In the years that you have been married and now in uh, AA. Was there ever a period where your sobriety was challenged? Was there ever a point within that 21 years, beside the suicide of your your wife, um, was there ever a point at which you felt like, uh uh-oh, I better redouble my efforts or I better get on the stick and go to extra meetings or make extra calls or do extra service work? I
1: can't really think of any. I always think of the spiritual kit of tools we have, you know, from I think it's page 25, uh, in the big book um, and I kind of think I, I think of it literally like the old black bags that doctors would carry about
3: uh-huh, and, yeah. I, and
1: I really think of that spiritual kit, tools so I always know that no matter where I am even if I don't have a f- access to a phone I can always pray and I so I, 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 I do a lot of praying in the moment uh, mm-hmm. what I call rocket prayers or jet prayers Mm -hmm. Um, and I seem to get, you know, comfort from that. Uh, I then, you know, can talk to my sponsor or grand sponsor. I kind of feel like I have two sponsors (laughs) depending on what time of the day it is. But, you know, now, you know, for the last 15 plus years being with a sober person all the time, you know, I, I can bounce things off of her in terms of stuff. Mm -hmm. you know not everything because some things you want to talk to your sponsor about but you know my sponsor he basically again it's one of these situations where we kind of sponsor each other in a way because we've both done the steps it's not like i'm taking him through the steps so you know i have an issue i can call him too yeah he's got more time than me but you know he's not my sponsor and he tells me what's on his mind too
0: Your wisdom that you've gained in the years that you've been in AA really shows, and it's very, very clearly out there. I see it. If you ran into the gym of 22 years ago on the street today, what would you say to them that might make a difference in their life?
1: First thing I would do would be to just give them a big hug. Maybe the gym of 22 years ago was just looking for love in all the wrong places. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he just just you're loved. You're loved by a, a God beyond your wildest dreams. You don't need all this other crap for acceptance. People, places, things, mm-hmm. you know, the the God sized hole that Carl Jung talked about with Bill mm-hmm. Wilson, you know? Yeah. That you're just putting crap into. Mm-hmm. Just fill it with God. Um mm-hmm. I, I think that that's, that's what I would say to him.
0: Well, it's a beautiful sentiment that you, that you made that the first thing you do is give him a hug. I think that's a very loving way to look at the gifts of the program and what they mean expressed through us to people who need us and who need a higher power everything you've talked about today has really described to me a man whose life seems really, really worth living these days. And uh, the joy that you express whenever I hear you share in the meetings, even with the difficulties that you go through, I think is very inspiring. And my hope is that whoever hears your share, especially if they're a doctor thinking the same thing that you were thinking back when, whenever, will be inspired by it to do something about it. And I know that as long as you're in the program, you will be available to that kind of man or woman in the, in, who needs the help. So that responsibility pledge that we take is, uh, I can see you doing that on a, on, a, on a daily basis. Well, this has really been terrific. I think you've been um, just brilliant. I, I want to thank you for doing this, Jim. I love you. And you're, you're, a heck of a, you're a heck of a man. And I love your story. And I've learned a lot today. And I look forward to our growing friendship over the years. We, we haven't known each other all that long, but especially some of the things you said about your childhood, they resonate.
1: Hopefully one day we'll be together in the same room and we can give each other a big hug.
0: I hope so. Again, many thanks for doing this, Jim. And, and uh, thanks a lot.
1: You're welcome. Thanks, Howard.
0: Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Jim G., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please leave a multi-star rating and review for the show on your podcast app? That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com by the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs. No advertising is allowed and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.